But ladies, I want to wish each and every one of you a happy Mother's Day um, this morning. Uh, whether you are a true mother, I don't even know if we even want to use that word anymore, or not, because I know that all of you have been a mother somewhere, someplace, and sometime um, to somebody, and so we are grateful uh, to all of you. That it's been said that the hand that rocks the cradle shapes the world, um, and I believe that that is very much the case. Um, so as I like to do, during Mother's Day, I like to pick out a passage referring to one of the women who really is one of our heroes of the faith. And I've talked about several of them over the years, and so I was having trouble. Um, I'm not a guy that likes to repeat. I, don't, I had a friend of mine, um, he referred to it as going to the drawer. Um, and he knew that because his father was the associate pastor in the church that he served at he would show up every Sunday morning and uh, he and the preaching pastor senior pastor would go to Winchell's that was the first order of business they went to Winchell's and had donuts and coffee and maybe they thought they were cops I don't know but anyway and then they went back in the office and the guy would pull out his drawer and he'd say what am I going to preach on this morning and I anyway so I anyway but um, that's some of the mechanics of things that I probably shouldn't be ever telling you about but anyway I don't like to do that um so I was thinking about and praying about, what do, I, what do I teach on? Who do I want to talk about? Who, Lord, should we consider um, as we celebrate Mother's Day? And so I came up with an unknown woman. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 36. We're going to cover verse 36 all the way to 50, but you know how I teach, so I'm just going to hit some little highlights. And I'm going to talk about this woman who is not named. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. I'm going to read out the New American Standard 2020 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 36 and read all the way to, uh, uh, to verse 50. Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Imagine that. And when she had learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who was touching him that she is a sinner. i got to interject here. How would he know? Anyway, let's continue. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So we have a parable here. And he said, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were 
unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume, or as the New King James says, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you for this incredibly courageous demonstration of worship that this woman did and had recorded for us so that we could glean from today. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless your word to our hearts, that you would instruct us in righteousness' sake. Fill us with your spirit that we, we might receive from you that which you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. This woman fascinates me on so many different levels. And the more I started thinking about it, I finally stopped taking notes. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, there's just so much here. I'm just going to just kind of essentially go with what I have. This story, or one like it, is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now, one of the things about reading the Gospels, and one of the reasons why it is critiqued by unbelievers, is that they don't always follow the same chronological timeline. And what we have to understand about ancient writing is when they were attempting to emphasize some type of a truth, some type of a point, they did not concern themselves as much with chronology as we do today. John takes this story toward the end of Jesus' ministry, as does Matthew. It's in John 12, it's in Matthew 26. John is the only one who names the woman as Mary of Bethany. This may be Mary of Bethany, but we can't prove it. There are some commentators who really want to assign this to Mary of Magdalene. We can't prove that either. Now, we don't even hear of Mary of Magdalene, actually, until the next chapter. But we have no biblical evidence of really who this woman is. Whether the, and for me, I think this, this, this um, occurrence, because they are described differently in all four of the Gospels, is in John 12, Matthew 26, and Mark 14, which is also written toward the end. 
Luke is the one who puts it toward, toward the middle part of Jesus' ministry. They all describe the situation a little bit differently. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with the text this morning and stick with Luke and, 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 and um, stick with what we have written for the facts. We don't know who this woman is. We don't even know who the Pharisee was, although some of the other accounts refer to Simon the leper, which may or may not have been the case. Again, this might have happened more than one time. It might have happened more than one time. And what's interesting is that this is, this is given to us really on, on the heels of, of, of Luke's version of, of the time where Jesus was actually speaking to them on the Sermon on the Mount, and where Jesus was then speaking to them, uh, that, that is the disciples of John. John had been thrown in prison, and, and John was starting to wonder if, if Jesus was actually the one. And, and we, what you have here is this affirmation that, in fact, Jesus is the one. Jesus was the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah, and you have this affirmation of all, by of all people, a woman. Now, I say it that way. Most of you understand why I say it that way. Because women were of very little value in that culture. And, and it, I'm almost wanting to jump ahead of myself and go to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul takes, says that God loves to take the foolish things of the world that are wiser than the wisdom of men. And that he gravitates toward, toward what the world considers to be foolish. And it's, to me, it's, it, it fascinates me because what we see here in this passage, what we see really given to us on the Sermon of the Mount, what we see given to us with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, it is, is that God, and I mentioned this Wednesday night, all right? I actually remembered it. But I mentioned this idea Wednesday night that God operates on a totally different paradigm than the world. Why is it that the successful and strong and influential people of the world attempt to teach us to operate in a way that is different than how Jesus has taught us in his word? But that's what they do. And are they successful? Yeah, they are. They are successful. But God has called us to walk a different life. To live a different lifestyle. To be in a place where we entrust the things of our life to him. If we seek first, Matthew 6, if we seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, then all these things will be added unto us. So we have this woman, and, and this woman fascinates me. 
she is incredibly, incredibly courageous. For her to go into a house, I want to say uninvited. Text doesn't say it. But why, why would the Pharisees, why would a Pharisee even let her in the house? Particularly because she was a sinner. What kind of a sinner? It doesn't say. Use your imagination or don't. It doesn't say. But if she was a sinner, that would mean that she was probably thinking in Jewish thinking. She was also probably ceremonially unclean. The Pharisees were the type, when they walked through the marketplace, and I've shared this with you before, they would take their 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 coat or cloak, the cloak, what's a cloak? Anyway, you, they would take their outer garment and they would wrap it around them very tightly so they wouldn't touch anybody else because they were afraid that if they touched someone, that person might be unclean. Therefore, if they touched that person, they would become unclean. See, they had a very superstitious faith. And this woman comes in to the dinner. Jesus is reclining at the table. What was custom at that time, we read about it, was when someone would enter into your house, you would have someone wash their feet for them. Remember, they just wore sandals back then, right? Um, and they didn't have sidewalks. So they walked on the dirt, so you can imagine what their feet looked like, right? And one of the customs that they would do that when they would receive a guest, they would have usually have their servant, usually the lowest servant, would wash the feet of the guest. Then the one whose house it was, he would come up and he would offer a kiss to receive them, a kiss on the cheek, all right? It was, it was custom then. And would normally anoint their head with oil. And apparently when this Pharisee received Jesus into his house, he offered him none of that hospitality, which was the custom of the day. Jesus is there. It says he's reclining at the table. And this woman comes in and stands behind him and she begins to start weeping. Now imagine your tears, you shedding enough tears that you could use that to wash someone's feet. That's a lot of tears. And for her to have that courage to have that type of emotional expression in front of people that didn't like her. She's in a hostile environment. And everything that she does to Jesus is an act of worship. She washes his feet with her tears. And she doesn't have a towel, so she uses the next, next best thing, 
her own hair to dry his feet. And it, it, and as I thought about this, I thought, boy, this must have been an incredibly uncomfortable scene. If I had been there, well, let's make it different. Let's say we're having a dinner here and Jesus shows up and he is the guest of honor. And all of a sudden this woman comes in that we know because she's one of those kind of women. She's a sinner. She comes in and does the very same thing. It would feel incredibly uncomfortable, I think. I know my skin would start to crawl. It's like, what do I do next? Oh, my goodness. And the owner of the house did not know what to do, I think, either. And so rather than shooting up the shotgun prayer, you know what the shotgun prayer is, right? Well, we sang it a little bit earlier. Lord, I need you. Lord, I, uh, oh, God, I need you every hour. I need you. Well, shotgun prayer is, Lord, I need you. Boom. That's about all you got room for, right? And instead of uh, sending up the shotgun prayer, he became critical. He became critical. He was mad, and he was angry, and he didn't like this intrusion, and he wasn't impressed with her worship, and therefore, what did he do? He turned it on Jesus. Yes, he criticized her. And this, this, you know, if, if you really were a prophet, you would know what kind of a sinner this woman is, which, again, how does he know? And so he becomes critical of Jesus. And you have this woman who has this incredible faith, a faith that produced courage, a courage because she was willing to express her brokenness, her contriteness, that word contrite in the Hebrew means broken. It can also mean to be crushed. And that brokenness, that crushing, produced a repentance when she humbled herself. I, I, I can't think of a more humbling posture than this woman had in her worship to Jesus. Again, first of all, the washing of your guest's feet was reserved for the lowest slave, the slave that was on the lowest part of the totem pole. But to do it in such a way, she didn't have a basin of water. But she washed and worshipped the feet of Jesus with the expression of her own sorrow of her own brokenness. We don't even know why she was weeping. Was she weeping because of the sorrow for her own sin? Or was she weeping in joy knowing that she had been saved? Knowing that here was, here was, here was the God of the universe that was here in the flesh to forgive me of my sins. We don't know, but we, to have this type of an out burst of emotion, she was incredibly overwhelmed. And to bring in this, this perfume that was probably very costly, 
Psalm 51 that David wrote. You see, David understands this idea of brokenness. Because David was a sinner, wasn't he? He understood this idea of brokenness. He slept with another man's wife who happened to be one of his mighty men. Then he had one of his mighty men put to death to cover it. But he writes in Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. See, if you read Torah carefully, David had committed a sin, that is the sin of murder. He had committed a sin by which there was no atonement provided in the sacrificial system. And so he realized that it was either the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, or it was absolutely nothing for him. There was no way of getting out of his responsibility. And if you think about the life of David, and yes, he paid dearly for that sin. But God was incredibly gracious to allow him to continue. Not only just continue being alive, but to continue in the role that he continued in after that sin. But he understood that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. These of God you will not despise. I'm going to speculate. Perhaps that woman was carrying that psalm on her heart when she went in to see Jesus. But she goes in to a hostile environment. She goes into a place where she's probably not even invited And she does so because she wants to worship Jesus. And again, I think this is a heart of worship that really exceeds any other heart of worship that I've read about in the Gospels. Because she is worshiping Jesus. Boy, I really can have a field day here, and I just might. She is worshiping Jesus out of her brokenness and out of her sorrow and out of her difficulty and out of her weakness. She has no capital in that room. She has absolutely no cultural capital whatsoever in that room. But she worships Jesus, out of her brokenness, out of her weakness, not out of her strength. Not out of her bigness and boldness and importantness. Is that a word? Okay, we're good. Bonnie says it's a word. And, and, and to me, that, is, that, that, that just brings an incredible question that, that, that we really have to heart check ourselves is by what posture of the heart do we come before the Lord week in and week out?
One of the verses in the Bible, I have so many favorite verses, but one of, one of the verses in the Bible that really speaks to me is, is, is when it talked about Job, when Job said, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. And that is probably one of the hardest and yet one of the most satisfying and fulfilling things that we can do in our lives when we are in that place. Because, as David wrote again, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And in fact, James talks about this, Peter talks about this, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Aside from Jesus, that woman may have been, I said may, okay, may have been the only humble person in that room. And you know, it's not hard to be humble around humble people. Well, it's not as hard to be humble around humble people. But when you're surrounded by a bunch of, be nice, Mike, prideful people, there we go, when you're surrounded by a bunch of prideful people or people who are acting, you can sense it. It's like coming out of their pores. They're acting out in pride. It's hard to be humble, isn't it? I think that's part of what was motivating James and John when they were praying that God would call down fire and, and lightning and zap these people because that, to them occurred to be a much better alternative than humbling themselves in front of them. Much of the church, I believe, is the same way. We don't value humility. In fact, I have a my friend of mine, he was he was my dissertation advisor. He wrote a book on humility. Now I just thought Oh, that's a hard thing to do because I thought I, I, one of these days I'll write a book on humility and how I obtained it, uh, which will basically just, you know, throw that whole idea out the window. And, and I, I went back and I didn't write any of them down, but I, I read some of the early fathers and, and they were talking about virtue. Virtue is this idea of responding to passion in a positive way. We forget what virtue, we don't even understand what virtue is today. The early fathers understood virtue. They understood the four cardinal virtues are courage and self-control or temperance and uh, justice and wisdom, those were the four cardinal virtues, virtues that go all the way back to the ancient world. But they were undergirded by three Christian virtues. You know what they are? I've told you this before. The three Christian virtues are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. They are faith, hope, and love, which are the foundation of those other four. So you have seven virtues, which I find fascinating. I'll let you your own thinking about that. But more than one of the early fathers, they said that humility was the gateway into virtue. 
Because in order to love, often we have to be humble. In order to have hope, we have to be humbled. In order to have faith, we have to be humbled. And humility is a commodity that was not popular then, really. And it definitely is not popular now. And Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, I talked about this recently, didn't I? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be, do, to be what? The servant of all, which requires what? Humility. See, Paul understood this. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he, where he, he says, And I, brethren... When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he goes on in verse 3 where he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. <clears throat> now remember the culture of the day. They didn't have a telephone. They didn't have a television. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have a regal movie house. Um, I think I covered them all. Probably forgot one. They didn't have bowling alleys. All right. I don't know if that, anyway, it just came to mind. All right. What was their form of entertainment? Rhetoric. Giving speeches. Standing up and, and, and boldly proclaiming often Philosophical ideas. That's what Mars Hill was all about in the book of Acts. Corinth, <clears throat> culturally, was like a carbon copy of Athens. They were very Athenian, except for they were a little bit more um, licentious, let's just say. So here comes Paul, and he describes himself in, the, in Corinth, and he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Now, if listening to speeches is your primary form of entertainment, who wants to listen to somebody get up there and, um, uh, um, and, and be fearful and really not know how to say it? I, I, I felt so bad. I, I let a guy, we were a part of a church plant in Burns years ago. A bunch of us in Central Oregon took turns going out there and teach, and I this guy really wanted to teach, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to let you do it. And I should have probably vetted him a bit more, and he showed up with eight pages. I've never taught out of eight pages in my life. I'm sure you haven't either. But anyway, um, he, he was nervous. And he had a, he had a way that when he, uh, uh, when he would talk, if he didn't know what to say or something, he'd go. And it, it wasn't a sigh of frustration. It was just what he did, but it comes across. doesn't come across well. Um, when he finally finished, I finally got up and wrapped it all up and, you know, tried to make something of it. But, but <clears throat> those people who listened to him that night, they were so gracious to him. They really were. The Corinthians normally were not that gracious. But they were held there by the power of God. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say in the second chapter that your faith would be in not in my pro proclamation, but in the power of God. You see, 
Paul, Paul shares that about himself. He shares this personal experience about himself in the second chapter because after what goes in front of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he had already written to them and said that not many are wise according to the flesh, not many are mighty, not many are noble or called, but the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the mighty. That God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are, which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are despised, God has chosen. A totally different paradigm of what is truly value than what we as a modern culture ascribes our value towards. See, again, I'm reading this story about this woman in Luke, and she's crying her eyes out and, and has so many tears, she's able to wash the feet of Jesus and then doesn't know what to do, and then so she takes her own hair and, and I, I can imagine myself sitting there and feeling very, very uncomfortable. When in reality, it might have been the purest form of worship that I'd ever experienced. Because it was without reservation. but it was the pouring out of her heart. And so with that, Jesus gives the parable. I'll read part of it to you again, verse 41. A moneylender had two debtors, and one known 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. Which one will, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. So the debtor is loved more by the one who had the greater debt canceled. What is Jesus teaching here? What is he really trying to say here? Is he really encouraging us to go out and sin up like a storm? You know, and if, if, if I commit all these sins and then ask for forgiveness, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So is he trying to tell us that if you sin more, you'll be forgiven and therefore you'll love more? To a degree. But that's not really the main point of what he's trying to say. What he is calling us toward, the Pharisee in the story, the people who were listening at the dinner table, and even us today, what he is attempting to unearth is to give us a greater awareness of the depth of our own sin. To 
Two things that are true about us. We are not as spiritual or as godly as we think we are. And we are probably a whole lot worse of a sinner than we even understand. You see, a lot of this has to do with our own self-awareness. I've been reading different, different books on this. In, in reality, that we really know, we really come to know God. Now, I'm talking outside of being saved. I'm talking outside of self. I'm talking sanctification here, all right? We really come to know God when we really come to know and understand ourselves. Conversely, it's a cycle. The more we know of God, the more we begin to learn of ourselves. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Well, I remember somebody got really mad one time, so the chicken, of course. But anyway, um, it's this reciprocal type of relationship. The more I begin to understand who I am in Christ, remember I'm talking sanctification here, the more I understand who I am in Christ, the more I become aware of who God is. So whoever it was, it might have been Cicero, but anyway, said, know thyself. Well, he wasn't that far off the mark. Because I think often it is, is that, that we, we, don't, we don't deal with the internal stuff. We whitewash it, or we gloss over it, or we pretend it didn't happen, or even worse, the psychologist is me and coming out now, even worse, we project it onto somebody else. I, yeah, I'm this way, but I don't want to think about that. What about that person over there who's doing this, this, and that? And usually when we take on that type of posture, we are no longer seeing those people through the eyes of Christ. We're seeing them through the eyes of an unjust judge who is seeking to justify themselves based on their own deeds. The one who is aware of their sin and recognizes that they have been forgiven of much, loves much. The one who has only a surface understanding of who they are and what type of a sinner they truly are has been forgiven little and therefore loves little. In other words, I'll, I'll sum this up. Do you fully apprehend and appreciate the work that God has done in your heart? That's a hard one. Because we, I don't want to say I, so I'm just going to say we, okay? We like to think that we're pretty good folks, don't we? Now, Jesus thought we were valuable enough to die on the cross for us, right? So, yes, there, we, we have some value. But to truly understand it and to comprehend who we are gives us the understanding of 
how much we have been forgiven, and therefore it frees us up to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Which, by the way, does not happen overnight. Which, by the way, I think is a lifetime event. And in that life, we take three steps forward and sometimes two back. And then what I love, ab I love about this passage, well, there's so much I love about this passage. After Jesus says, look what this woman did. Look at this act of worship. She t he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, was she forgiven because she cried a whole lot? Made a mess of her hair? And used the perfume on Jesus? No, she cried because her humble, broken heart gave herself to the Lord Jesus Christ and she worshipped him as an expression of the fact that she knew that she had been forgiven. There, there, there's some things that were going on in this story that we're not privy to. I don't know what they are. I'm not even going to bother to speculate. Psalm 47, excuse me, Psalm 42, 7 talks about deep calling out to deep. The depth of God. I, I, it's one of my favorite verses, uh, like the one in Job. But anyway, one of my favorite verses that I refer to quite a bit because I think it's so important because you have the depth of the heart of God calling out to the depth of the heart of humanity, to men and to women. And she heard. She heard the voice of God. She responded to the voice of God. And then, and then even more than that, she got what she came for. She got what she came for because this, I love the way this ends. Because now they're grumbling again. Those who sat at the table, verse 49, they're saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? They have no idea who they're even sharing a meal with. It's like some people I know, and I hate, well, I want to say I hate, hate to complain about it, but maybe I don't. But anyway, it, it's, it's, some people wouldn't know spiritual if it bit them in the nose. They just don't. They are spiritually dull. And here you have what might have been the greatest expression of worship recorded in the Gospels, and all they can do is, well, what kind of a man is this? Now, at least they are asking the question. So I'm going to give them some credit, all right? But Jesus does not even address their murmuring, their mumbling. There's a lot to think of in that, which I, I'm going to let I'm going to let that dangle out there for you. Because how does he respond? He returns back to the woman. 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That sounds very similar to enter into the blessing of the Lord. Thou good and faithful servant. That sounds very similar to that. I read to you what David wrote in Psalm 51. Uh, Prophet Isaiah wrote in Psalms, or excuse me, Isaiah 66. He says, verse 2, it says, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. See, she was emotionally undone. Crying instead of trembling, but probably doing that as well. Uh, trembling at his word. And the Lord says through Isaiah, this is the one on whom I will look. She was the one who got his attention. Not the murmurers and the grumblers, although he did pause to explain to the owner of the house what was going on a little bit more. But as I, as I thought about this, I thought about the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 13. And, and, and it's, it's, it really is in the... In, in, couched in a prophecy where Israel will one day return. Take it, take it in the context. But here she is, Israel, or at least one person of Israel, because I'm going to assume she was Jew. One person of Israel who has returned, because the prophet Jeremiah said it, and the Lord speaking through him says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This woman did exactly that. She sought out God. She found God because she searched for God with her whole heart. And she found God in the person of our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And the expression of her whole heart was exactly what we read about in this little passage. As she wept and dried and anointed the feet of Jesus. Her whole heart, her desire for God led her to unashamedly, unreservedly worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we read already in John chapter 4, the time is coming and now is that the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This woman gave us an incredible Incredible example. Maybe a stretch. In some regards, she's the mother of our worship. The worship that issues forth from the heart in spite of the form that it takes place. <laughs>